Welcome to The Art of Growth, where we use the Enneagram and the best tools we can find to help you transform. This is Jim Zartman, and this is not a normal episode. There is a visual component to this episode, and you're going to need the visual in order to be able to follow along. So we've created a feelings wheel. Uh, Maybe you've seen a feelings wheel before, where there's a wheel that has emotions named all around it. A lot of times they use this to help people increase their capacity to understand and identify emotions. They use them a lot with kids, but we wanted to make one that was specific to the Enneagram and that not just named it, but actually gave a little bit of vision, a little directionality, a little bit of growth, because that's what we're all about. So if you subscribe to our newsletter, there's a link to download the feelings wheel we are discussing today in your inbox right now. I put it on Instagram with a link, but it'll be very small and hard to read on there. You can go download the PDF of this for free at theartofgrowth.org in the store, which just opened. And because this is a really helpful tool to have around the house, there's also print versions available for order there as well. So if you want to listen to the podcast, download the image, and then you can look at that as we refer to it as we go through the podcast. And if you prefer, this is the first time we've done this, which we have also put this podcast on YouTube. So if you look up the Art of Growth Feelings Wheel on YouTube, you will find the live call that we did unedited. And the Feelings Wheel pops up throughout uh, the discussion whenever we're referring to it or we're uh, looking at how to understand it better and use it. And I have been excited about this episode coming out for months now. Even before that, from when I first drew a sketch of this in my journal, because I found feelings wheels to be helpful, but not enough. (laughs) They weren't giving me what I really wanted, what I really needed to point me in the right direction and to help me. So I drew a version up that would help me. And then our dear designer, Serena, created this beautiful version that you can download and that we will be referring to today. So I am absolutely stoked and thrilled today to be in a place where we can give this free gift away. You can download the PDF and print it out, put it on your fridge. I hope it's on thousands of refrigerators, helping families, helping kids identify emotions and also remember the true self, which uh, we'll get to in the podcast, why it's designed in that way to point you towards your true self, not just the interrupting emotion which is often referred to as your sort of central emotion in the Enneagram. But we're going to go deep into that. We'll explain all of it. This episode will be super helpful for you understanding uh, emotions in general, but also how to use this tool in your life and your home. So let's get into this episode with uh, these really helpful voices in the world of emotion therapy and people who have a good, deep understanding of the Enneagram as well. Let's get into it. Well, I am hugely honored to have the five of you here today. So we have a a six-person episode, and I have therapists with me who understand this world way better than I do. So just as we're getting started, I wanted each of you just to introduce yourselves and just say a little bit about what kind of therapy you're involved with. And we'll start right here at the top of my screen with Michelle. Okay. Yeah. So I'm Michelle. I'm a therapist in Birmingham, Alabama, an LPC, licensed professional counselor. I specialize in attachment and trauma. I do a lot of work with couples and also families um, who have children who've been through trauma. So 
So that's me. And uh, oh, and also say your type here because Michelle is oh, a three. Yes, I'm a self-pressed three. That's yes. me. We have all all the, the centers represented here. So I'm really excited about that. All right, Lisa. Hello, my name is Lisa and I am a clinical mental health therapist currently working in a public school, K-12 public school. I get to work with the students, sometimes the parents. Um, I'm a self-pressed type one. Yes, Maria. <laughs> Hi. Um, yeah, my name is Maria. I'm a therapist in the Milwaukee area, and I do a little bit of couples work and find the Enneagram very useful in couples work. Yeah. <laughs> I work primarily with adults, a little bit with adolescents. Um, I have a background working with uh, a lot of kind of severe trauma-related stuff, um, personality disorders. I um, have special interest in um, postpartum stuff, chronic pain, that sort of thing. And so my background is cognitive behavioral, but I've really pulled the Enneagram in in recent years um, for a, a fair number of my clients. And Maria is a type four. I am a type four. I'm going with social, but I've got a, an edge of self-pres. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Chelsea. Hey, I'm Chelsea. I'm a marriage and family therapist located in Fort Collins, Colorado. I primarily work with kids, teenagers, and adults with complex trauma, uh, similar it sounds like to a few of you here. Uh, I also work with students who are training to be therapists, marriage and family therapists. So I use a lot of Enneagram work with my work with my students and with my clients. I'm a six self-pres, but also very high social. We have a lot of self-pres going on in this room. That's, that's kind of a surprise to me. That's cool. Um, and finally, Patria. Hi, I'm Patria, and I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. And my professional training is actually not as a therapist. I'm uh, not a licensed mental health provider, but it's more spiritual intuitive route. And recently went ahead and made it a profession and got my coaching certificate a couple of years ago. So this business has now grown into there's about eight of us here that are doing this type of work. Mm -hmm. um, so we have some combination of spiritual direction, counseling, or, or licensed therapy here. So it's a hodgepodge of collaborators. So Awesome. Unless you are watching this on, on YouTube or you have already pulled up this image, which you can do either from our website. If you got our email today, you will have a link to see the feelings wheel that we're going to be discussing. It's also on Instagram, but I'm going to share it on the screen just for us in the room and for anyone watching this on YouTube. We don't <laughs> haven't used the YouTube channel yet, but we're like, this might be a good use of it. And so the, the feelings wheel is, you know, it's up on the screen here and I would love to get just some of your uh, reactions, your thoughts when you saw this, because, uh, you know, if you have other experiences with feelings wheels, helping people identify emotions. So for me, I got one of these and I printed it out on our refrigerator at home initially to help uh, my daughter so we could name the emotions as she's, you know, mat was maturing, you know six, seven, eight, you know, that age group, but I found it, you know, really helpful for myself. Uh, but then uh, I reorganized it in, in this fashion to be a little bit more based on what we've learned in the Enneagram, really focusing on the high side, moving towards our high side and, and really moving towards integration. We all have all three centers within us. We all experience all of these different emotions. And so 
I just wanted to organize it in a way that made sense with uh, our work, with the work of the Enneagram. But I also wanted to honor so much of the work of the world of, of counseling and of therapy who, who really help people unearth their emotions. And so I'm curious, really, I wanted to ask you all, you know, what you saw when you saw this, because uh, a couple of you um, were meeting with me when I, I think I showed you like the sketch that I initially did in my notebook. A couple of you saw that and asked me to go make the thing. And literally the next day, then I reached out to a designer and said, uh, Serena, our designer, and said, can you help us put this together? So I'm just curious as to your like thoughts and in that even helping people who don't come from this world understand why do these feelings wheels exist and what purpose do they serve? So I read a statistic recently that said in the United States, um, the average uh, emotional vocabulary is four words. So the average American can, and that's some version of um, glad, mad, sad, and, you know, throw in a, a fourth. And so where these feeling wheels, I think are so cool is that um, we really want to be able to connect with other people to um, have them kind of be able to step into our space or step into theirs. We, we need more than just those four. And so these feeling wheels really help us to drill down. Are you mad or are you frustrated, um, for example? And so it just, I don't know, really helps people expand. So what you talked about doing with your daughter is really neat because I think if kids can learn that early and expand that vocabulary, they're just so much more comfortable as they grow up. You know, when people are learning that as adults, that's it's a little bit tough sometimes. So I guess just some thoughts on why the feeling wheels are such a good thing and yours in particular, because it is divided into the different centers, the head, the heart, the body. I'm really excited about that aspect, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. I know other people have stuff too. I think the specificity is so important. Like you were saying that it might not be just mad or it might not be just happy. It's something more specific. And there's something that clicks, I think, for me when we have an emotion that fits a little bit better than some of those main four. It feels very validating. It feels like, oh, yes, that's that's the one. Um, and that helps kind of start that journey of a re emotional regulation where mm -hmm. I'm able to, like Dan Siegel talks about, name it to tame it. That, that's a big thing we talk about with our kids and families we work with. And how do we actually name it as the first step to going into the process, really starting to regulate and letting emotions really go through us so that we can kind of process through and then integrate, come out on the other side. But the very first step of that's naming it. And I like the, the wheel because it gives so many examples and, and the nuance is there too, where you can really find the, the right emotion that fits whatever the sensation, whatever the experience is and able to really start that process. And I think connect to other people in that way too. Yeah, when you can nuance an emotion from, ah, I'm just angry and then nuance it toward, well, I'm angry because I feel betrayed versus, well, I'm angry because I feel frustrated. Once you know that nuanced sensation, it then you can, it, it empowers 
the person to ask for those a need to be met, which is where that connection comes in and, and the relationship is brought into the, that individual feeling. So it, it's got so many layers to it and it's, it's a simple tool to connect those points. Well, you know, being able to accurately identify your emotions is really critical. But, you know, I think one of the things that happens with people is, you know, I, I sometimes use the metaphor is that when we aren't able to be really clear with ourselves, much less anyone else, about what it is we're feeling, it's kind of like going into an emergency room and saying, help me, help me, help me. And they say, well, what do you need help with? I mean, are you having a heart attack? Are you having a baby? Did you break your ankle? Do you, your appendix out? What is it? And until I know what that is, in, in pretty accurately, I have no idea what to do about it. I can't possibly problem solve. I can't possibly accurately express what I need to a partner, you know, or even cope in, in any kind of way. So I think that's a, a really important part of it. It's just that accurate identification of what we're feeling. But the other thing that I saw when I looked at it, because, it, you know, honestly, the and maybe this is just the group that I work with, the, um, the people that tend to gravitate toward my practice, accurate identification of feelings is often not the thing they struggle with the most. I mean, we all have our, our preferences, the, the emotions we like and the emotions we choose not to engage in when we have um, our options. But what I tended to see was a lot of movement toward, you know, the, the thing that I often try to get through to people is, you know, I, I think we have this bias toward, you know, okay, you've got this problem and you just need to be different than you are. You need to somehow morph into this other person who has all these qualities that you don't have, and then you'll be better. Mm. And what I say to that is, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think we already have everything we already need. Mm. I'm already everything I need to be, but the best of me is the worst of me. <laughs> and I need to learn how to channel that. I, I need to know what the movement is for me to be the best version of that person. And so when I looked at that wheel, what I saw was a lot of movement toward how I need to be in the world, right? So, you know, if my place where I get stuck is in sadness and shame as a four, and it is, the place I need to get to is toward that understanding of love, my own worthiness and lovability. <laughs> You know, that feeling that I am enough in and of myself, you know, if I were a six, you know, having that sense of, you know, faith in myself, that I have what I need within me without having to check somewhere else, for example. So um, I think that's how I was looking at it when I first, I first looked at it. It was more about movement and how we need to channel just for ourselves that higher side of our numbers. Absolutely. I agree with you. I think for me personally, as a three, as a heart type, I liked that it allowed me, if I am really in the throes of some emotion, um, sticking just in my heart type is not always terribly mm -hmm. helpful. And so looking right. at your wheel, Jim, I think I was able to say, okay, so if I am really jealous, 
if I stay in my heart, I'm going to have a hard time having that movement that you're talking about, Maria. But if Mm -hmm. I can look at another section of the wheel, that is so much more accessible to me. So I may jump over to the head type and look at what do I need there? Do I need to focus on, you know, a a wonderful uh, fix, I guess, for feeling jealous or insecure is to be kind or encouraging to to someone else. And I can find that in a different a different section of the wheel. If somebody just tells me to be the opposite in that moment, I, I would be the opposite if I could, if that were accessible to me. And so um, I don't know, that's, that really excites me about this wheel that I can move. I think that um, heart type, that's the love section. So if I want to go into the peace or faith section, I was just able to really zoom in really quickly on what can I access in myself that will get me moving toward that high side because sitting, sitting in something like jealousy is not going to bring out the best in me. And I think that speaks to the integration piece that fits so well with this wheel. I think as a head type, I'm, and as a six, I know a lot of sixes say they don't have the anxiety piece, but I definitely do. And that piece can feel overwhelming at times. And so I, as a head type, very much go into the spin and start thinking my emotions. What are the stories I'm telling myself about this emotion? How am I trying to think myself out of the spin, but that just makes the spin go faster. (laughs) So how do I really get back into my body space, get into my heart space, really feel and name, okay, this is the anxiety. This is where it comes up in my body. This is how I know this is it. And then how do I move towards that high side where I can have courage and faith and faith in self and faith in the future without constantly going into that head spin and really kind of start like really being present and cultivating my capacity for presence and being able to do that then gets me, I think, more into an integrated side where I'm really more my authentic self. I'm feeling more calm. I'm feeling more hopefulness. I'm feeling more able to be connected with my people who I love so much and my systems who support me so much when I'm in this more calm, present state. But sometimes I get so trapped in that spin of thinking my emotions. And I know I'm not going to be able to to think my way out of this. I'm going to have to feel it. And I'm going to have to then be able to move through it in some way and kind of come back on the other side of that. When I first saw that in that group that we were in and you popped that up, I mean, like my, my response was like, oh, like, I, and it, it's a lot to do with initially the colors and the beauty of it. Cause as a four, that's <laughs> the draw. I mean, it, you know, that's so much of the initial, like, oh, oh my gosh. And so I just want to say too, that it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful for one thing, but when I first came into emotions and one of the reasons it took me three and a half years to land as a four is that my first introduction to emotions was an eight and a half by 11 paper with, you know, how they have like the categories on the top, like angry, happy, whatever. And then there, there was like probably 300 words, like little tiny 10 font or eight font words like down singles. And I was nauseated. I I was like, Oh, excuse my language, but holy shit. Like I can't even feel one 
thing and I'm supposed, am I supposed to feel all these? So it took me a long time to understand from an Enneagram perspective that, that I'm a four. Obviously I'm self-pres for because I don't think the other fours would probably identify too much with that. I don't know. So that was the beginning of coming into feelings and it was overwhelming. There, there was no sense of help in that list, but I at the same time could see there was value in this and somebody mentioned the illiteracy the emotional emotional illiteracy of the of the population so that was the beginning of it then i found the faces feelings wheel chart and i used that with my kids especially when they were younger because that helped us to communicate with each other mm. and then i found the feelings wheel and I felt like the feelings wheels were far more helpful in terms of that, like you guys are talking about the movement and the sense of like emotions aren't static. They're always in, in flux. And so it helps to kind of, to put that reality to it, I think. But with this one, um, what I really like about it is the movement, but it also be before I do something with it, before I, you know, attend to the feeling of bitterness, I can identify, am I in bitterness or am I in shame? Like, this is what I like about this one is that I feel like in an average unhealthy space, I feel like we live in the sadness, shame, anger, fear, anxiety space. I feel like that's our average unhealthy, unconscious, unintentional space. And just identifying that first gives me a clue about kind of where I'm at. Mm. So, you know, so like, am I more sad or feeling more shame? And am I leaning more <laughs> towards the love or am I leaning more? I don't know. It, it just feels very movement oriented. And mm. then the other thing that I would say that really stood out to me are the colors. And I actually looked up the meaning of these colors i don't know if you intentionally did that or not um well the colors were chosen specifically because i was uh well it was like derivative of the um you know the the three main colors that you can create all the other ones with and we had done some other work in other words where we assigned those colors towards a center that felt more consistent with that center but I appreciate you saying that it looks beautiful because that's one thing I really wanted to do because the feelings we like, I printed out a hat on my refrigerator. I didn't really like looking at it. Like uh, it was very like clinical and cold and I wanted something that was like warm. And so this, we're talking to the designer and she's like, we could do it in watercolors. And I was like, yes, watercolors. Let's do that. Make it beautiful. But I love what you said about how, um, yes, yeah, sort of that the emotion that's going on that the automatic motion, the the one that's sort of like running in the background. And, you know, in the Enneagram, the body types, they, you know, the core emotion is, they say is anger, you know, for heart types, it's the sadness and shame. And for the head types, it's that fear or anxiety. But I don't think that's the core emotion. I think that's the core interrupting emotion. That's what I see in myself. That's what I see in a lot of the clients that I deal with is there's a, there's a core that is, good that is beautiful that is their truest self but then you have these interrupting emotions and then we can end up feeling outside of this so that's why i organized the you know the faith peace and love in the center and then it's really the interrupting emotions push us out of ourselves 
we're more disconnected to ourselves. So that was the movement I wanted to give is get that sense of like pushed out from self and then using some of this language to actually move back towards the authentic and true self. Yeah, I wanted to use the word unlock. It feels like it unlocks that. Mm. That feels like a, a thing. I like that word. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. good. Thank you. I, I really love that because, you know, I was trained in a model, you know, by my doctorates in clinical psychology. And so we learn to treat your symptoms and your disorder. And so, you know, all of these things are seen as a problem and we need to get rid of them and all of this kind of thing. And mm. I think what I've actually learned in practice or what, what I've come to believe at least is that it is about embracing that true part of ourselves, that core of ourselves it's kind of a two-part process. You know, the first part is accepting that I am who I am and who I have always been, and that is who I will always be. Mm. That, And there's some data to back that up, that, you know, we kind of are born a certain way, and there's a continuity in that through our lifespan. But then once I fully accepted that about myself, that, you know what, I am a four and here is what that means. And here's the thing I do. And I can predict that <laughs> when I'm doing well and when I'm not doing well, this is what it looks like. And then I have to get over that. And that's the second piece. And I think that's where choice can come in. You know, that I don't have to do the thing that I always do because it's the easiest way for me to do it. And so, you know, I guess as a four, I don't need a wheel to tell me the different feelings. Uh, you know, right. emotions are the water that I swim in. <laughs> I, I've got so many thousands more words that I can throw in there and I can talk about at length. Right. And if I allow myself, that is exactly what I will do. Not that that necessarily helps me. <laughs> right. And so the thing that once I have choice and I go, okay, I've acknowledged that part of my problem is that I am completely paralyzed right now because I'm all up in my foreness. Now maybe I can take that step back and say, okay, I'm going to briefly say the thing I need to say, and then I'm going to take a step back. You know, I, I, I'm married to an eight. And so that has been a skill that I've had to really work on because that does not work with an eight. You know, I, I can't have my hours of processing time as much as I'd like it. So I've had to learn to say, okay, that's the thing that I do. Now I need to try to be otherwise, say it, get in, get out, <laughs> and, and do what's effective. And sometimes that's not what is most attractive to me. Right. You know, sometimes it's something different. But you are still honoring yourself and you're honor, honoring your partner. You're honoring, like, I need to express a certain yes. way. I'm going to express something, but I'm also going to do it in a way that is accessible to you. So you're really right. honoring the both of you in that approach, though. Yeah, but it, but it first starts with me acknowledging this is who I am and this is what I do. Yeah. And, and but in the, on the one hand, I love that about myself. I would not change that about myself. And at the same time, I have to see the places where that's not serving me. And I need to figure out a technique for me to help me deal with that, which is going to be different than the technique of somebody else. You know, if, if you're elsewhere on the Enneagram, you need something different than what I do. But yeah. to me, you know, that's a lot of what therapy is, is figuring out, okay, like, how do I cope with myself now? Now that I know that this is the thing that I do, 
what do I need to do about that? It is a map for where I am, but it's also a map for where I am in relationship to another, like I think is what you're talking about. And I think it's so connected to, to story, to my story, that um, one of the most effective ways I find using feelings in my work is to say, what are you feeling is the first question. Have you felt this way before that you can identify? And it helps to then put those pieces together in a really practical way um, that can help me know why, why is this way of engaging so meaningful to me and why am I so attached to it? And is it serving me, as you were saying, now? And is there a better way? And I think that's where it really comes to, to bear fruit, um, not only in relationship with other people, but with myself, you know, in, in that um, sense of, of getting stuck or unstuck. That makes me think about the stances in the Enneagram. So I know that my stance is typically to move um, kind of at people or against, like um, people with my stance have to watch being maybe aggressive or too much. But then there's also a stance of moving away of withdrawing. And then the the third stance of sort of moving toward maybe a little um, needier. And so I think being able to move with, to move out of those stances and really be able to move with others, which is um, what you guys have described so well, going back to this wheel where we have to be able to conceptualize how are we going to move with them? What do I have that I can use to move with you? What can I connect to in you so that that's a safer place? a more effective place for, for both of us. I'm really, I'm fascinated with the stances idea. And I really saw that when I looked at how this was broken down, just as giving so many other possibilities uh, besides those ways that we interpret people that can make things really difficult. And that there are those stances do exist within each center. All three stances exist within the three center. You know, we always say that you have all these centers within you, like you have all these emotions in you, like you tend to have a preference, of course. And I look at this chart and I certainly have my preferences, but we've been talking more and more about this, like the fourth way, which is like the integration of all of them. It's the the integration of all three centers. And it's the the essence of having all these things at the, at the core of us uh, that, you know, we... The, the body types who are, I am what I do, what we do matters. It matters a great deal that if we are doing from a place of peace, as far as doing from a place of anger, where we have to fix something and change something, or we have to, you know, pull away in the case, more in the case of the nine, you know, for the hard types, I've, I've had this conversation with hard types where they're just like, they feel like the sadness and shame. That's like the most authentic. That's the most real emotion. And I'm like, that's not the realest you go deeper you know, go deeper or zoom out who you are and who you give is love that we talk about, like the anxiety and the the fear, even if it's not noticed by the head types, that functioning attention towards what I need to do to not feel that. <laughs> but I'm still like, that is not your core thing. And that's why when we did opposites with all these, like the opposite of fear 
is not courage. It's an aspect of it. But the opposite of fear is faith, the capacity to move forward when you do not know the outcome. That's what faith really is. It's the capacity to move forward, even if you don't know the outcome. And so it's like moving towards your your core and your true self that I loved how you were talking about the movement, because that is the goal. I want us to get towards the movement of like these integration. These are all part of us. This is your true self is the high side of you is the truest side of you. It's like you think that this is the real you, you know, you go down deeper, you're going to find because this is what happens. A lot of times people, they go through a little bit of tragedy. If they're, you know, let's say they're a body type, they go through some tragedy and some, some betrayal, and they start going down and they do, they get angry, you can see bitterness showing up. But for so many of them, if they actually go all the way through it, what they end up on the other side is they are someone who can who can open up, um, who understands how hard life can be, they become more empathetic, more engaged with their emotions. And they become more of a presence and a perpetuator of peace as a result. And so you're giving back to me. It's so amazing to hear you're giving back to me some of what I'm hoping like this tool will will do for people. So you've brought up a couple things as far as what you found useful to you. And I'd be curious, like what else is either useful to you or how could you see yourself using this tool with others? One of the things that I love the most about the Enneagram is that it's, it doesn't just label a personality like some of the other assessments do. Like this is just who you are. You fit in this box. One of the things I love is that it's, it's more geared toward a a path of growth. Um, It's helping you identify patterns and um, a path toward integration. So this wheel has, I see so many uses because it's the first step is yes. You know, kind of identify what you are feeling, label it. I mean, just the, that function of naming it to tame it has so many physiological uh, effects, but, but another layer is, you know, as I'm a, I'm a one, so body type, I go from body to head pretty quickly and I analyze. So I can, especially with my, my background and training, I can name a lot of nuanced emotions that doesn't always help me get into my heart. Mm. Um, So being able to identify, okay, I'm a, that loop, you know, body to head, my, you know, maybe my growth step and maybe a way to use this with people you're coaching is, you know, helping them identify their neglected center and having them imagine what some of those feelings feel like to, you know, for, again, using it for integration and the idea of that fourth way, you know, I could see for me in in that love heart section, um, you know, meditating on what is this, what is the physical sensation of belonging feel like, you know, allow the system to feel that deeply and just sit with it. So that then in a crisis moment, when I go from gut to head really quick, I can be like, Oh wait, hang on. Oh, I need to I can imagine now what belonging feels like. It re-engages me with the heart. I can connect with the other person. Um, So I think using it intentionally to help develop some of our neglected or repressed center sensations, actions, I mean, there's so many possibilities. Yeah. And Lisa, something you mentioned in the email was hemispheric integration. Can you explain Mm -hmm. a little bit of, of that? I saw a couple of heads go, oh yeah. And I'm going, what, 
So yeah. they will know exactly. Um, sounds like we have some Seagull fans here. So right hemisphere in general is holistic. It's feeling, it's sensation, artistic uh, hemisphere tends to function in categories and it's logical and linear and has language. Our brain and mind is, are designed to take in sensory information from the outside world and process it. A holistic impression on the right side goes to the left side for, okay, help me make sense of this. What's the logic here? Label it. Goes back to the right side. Okay, this is what I figured out. Okay, here's a, a more expanded, holistic approach. Um, so when we can't, it is that name it to tame it. When we can't add language to this huge, overwhelming, broad feeling, global feeling, and you add nuanced language, it, it, it is literally uh, altering the fabric of that integration between the left and right, and it. It just moves us toward more flexibility um, and an increased sense of well-being. Mm. It also integrates vertically uh, head to nervous system because when you can mm. label and name, all of a sudden it shifts that global to specific and there's you can do something with specific. So your your nervous system kind of relaxes like oh it's not going to overpower me i have i can develop strategies so it, it just shifts the whole chemistry i think it helps you ride that wave the mm -hmm. actual feeling of the feeling that is so yeah. difficult for myself yeah. included um and how do you really ride and stick with the wave of the emotions and one of the things dr hillary mcbride talks about is we heal when we can be with what we feel Mm -hmm. And I really love that because it's just such a reminder that even though we want to get to the other side, we want to move into this other area of emotion, we first have to name it and then be with it, turn towards it. What is it telling me? What is this emo emotion teaching me? Is it anger? And it's teaching me that I need to put up a boundary here or a value was triggered. Is it fear uh, based on our past experience or something that I'm nervous about happening in the future. And I think that for me is too, especially as a head type, I don't like that part, <laughs> particularly with the emotions that are uncomfortable or not quite as easy to stick with. I'll maybe sit for a couple minutes with it and then be like, okay, why isn't it over? I sat with it. Why is it still here? Why am I not <laughs> done feeling the emotion? Uh, so I think that speaks to that piece that you can't really, your body and brain and nervous system can't digest it and metabolize it until you really sit with it and turn towards it. And I think what we've been taught as a culture and society is to diminish it, to push it down, that that's not a feeling that we express or that's allowed to be felt for X, Y, Z reason. Um, and so we do that. And then we have our defenses come up that try to protect us from actually feeling the feeling or naming that that's what it is. And then what typically happens, and Dr. McBride talks a lot about this in her book, uh, The Wisdom of Your Body, but it'll start screaming at us. It'll start coming up in all these other ways. We start developing chronic pain and trauma responses and all these even more overwhelming emotions when we don't sit and turn towards it 
the emotion. And I think too, it takes a lot of vulnerability to be able to do that piece. And I find for myself and for my clients that that feels really scary to be vulnerable enough to name this is what it is um, and, and really sit with it. That there's, again, a lot of our own experiences and uh, socialization that is making it feel really, you know, either not allowed or this is too dangerous or I've been punished for or shamed for expressing this emotion. Um, and so there's that protective part, I think, that really sometimes can be a barrier, even though it's trying to protect us, can be a barrier to really sitting with the emotions, letting us turn towards it and getting curious about why is it here? What is this teaching me? Because that takes so much vulnerability. A lot of the, especially teenagers, talk about, you know, if I let that wall down, people are going to judge me. They're not going to understand they're going to call me crazy. I'm going to get put in the hospital. Um, you know, we pathologize a lot of it. And a lot of mental illness issues really come down to this inability to regulate emotion when, you know, so much of it. And so I think being able to have the vulnerability and normalize these emotions are okay. We all have them. We all feel them. We need to turn towards and get used to being uncomfortable sitting with the emotion, no matter how hard it is, and then lean on others, mm. connect, whether it's with a therapist, a loved one who can really validate that emotion and, and let you know that you're not alone in that. So I think that can be so rewarding when we can get to that side of things, but can be so hard because there's so much vulnerability with that. There's an irony too. I love that you have that core, the peace, love, faith, in the middle, because a paradox that goes with the vulnerability of feeling positive things. I, I think it's, it's, it's really vulnerable when we go to that deep core and just dare to hope, you know, dare to love and really expose that. Um, I think that's why those, I don't remember the exact terminology you used, Jim, but the, you know, the anger, the sadness, the shame. Yeah, interrupting almost, emotion, yeah. There you go, interrupting emotion. Yeah, it, in a sense, I mean, that is, that's the patterned response, right, to that core need that is ultimately so vulnerable as a one. I desperately want you know, goodness and peace in the world, and I get angry because I can't feel that, or I, it feels like it's too sad to to want that and see everything else so just that reminder that that's that's the core and it's it, as we develop regulation and flexibility we can we can we can allow that to be exposed just a little bit more mm -hmm. i think that's so spot on too i remember in our enneagram coaching group I talked a lot about my anxiety and Jim brought up the idea of faith. Mm -hmm. And when he gave me the definition, I was like, Oh, that feels scary yeah. <laughs> to lean into that. That feels like, I don't like the anxiety feeling, but the faith like that feels vulnerable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, and then that anxiety, if I lean into faith of just allowing, doing the next thing, even not knowing what the future holds or knowing if that's the right decision, the anxiety is the interrupter going, well, what if, 
well, what if this, or what if that? And then, so then it's like, okay, I see you, I hear the anxiety, I get it. And I'm going to like regulate and then still continue to choose faith. But I think that's so right that that core, that core emotion can feel so, so vulnerable, especially when we're not used to Mm -hmm. uh, leaning into it as much. Just having a thought, maybe my fellow four can like, tell me if you feel this too, as you, as you guys are identifying the movement in feels more vulnerable. It feels almost flipped for me. Like it feels the more that I move toward love, I feel more less, I feel less, maybe not vulnerable, but um, wounded is maybe a better word. The more that I move toward love, I feel less woundable and more stable. Mm. Yeah. My first thought about that is that I think fours are a special case in that vulnerability is our superpower, right? I mean, that, that is who we are. So that really isn't our challenge. I, I think speaking broadly outside of a four, the thing I was going to say is that, you know, we all have our favorite emotions and just because something is painful doesn't mean it's not comfortable. We all have our go-to painful emotion, whether that's anger or fear or shame or what have you. I mean, we, we have the thing where we like to get stuck. And I think the goal of it isn't, it's to be able to feel everything. It is to have the rainbow, yeah. you know, so Yes, I feel sadness, but I also have the capacity for joy and I allow myself to feel fear and I allow myself to feel all of it. And I I think for me, as I I think about like, so what do we do with all of this? You know, because this idea of, okay, so who is this core self that I'm working toward? If I'm not about that emotion that I like to get stuck in, what am I and what does that mean? I think it opens me up to the really beautiful part, not just of who I am, but of who you are. Then we can start to look at it as what is the gift that we can give to each other? You know, I I don't have all of these gifts naturally. You know, vulnerability, I've got that. And I can lead other people into that place and we're good to go. But there are other places that are not an easy fit for me. And so, when I can see without judging someone else and pathologizing their space, when I don't have to label that as somehow bad or wrong, or here's why you'll never be normal or healthy or loved or whatever, (laughs) which unfortunately a lot of Enneagram teaching does kind of sound like that. I hate to say it. I agree. But, you know, especially my, my early introduction to it, a lot of it sounded like, oh, here's what you are and here's what is wrong with you. And here's the personality disorder that goes with that, right. which I think is a horrible stance. Yeah, yeah. And instead, if I look at it as not like what's wrong with you, but I think what is the gift that you have to give to me? Yes. Each of these other types has a gift that I don't have. And so whether it's, me getting myself activated and saying, okay, I have to do right now, or I have to persist even though I'm feeling like I'm drowning here or whatever that is, I can see that as a really beautiful thing. And so, you know, if we're all about relationships and I think we are, the second that I can see who I am and embrace 
the fullness and the beauty of that, the sooner I can see the fullness and the beauty in who you are, even when you're being really difficult right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I can see where that comes from and I can go, Oh, okay. That's just so-and-so getting caught in the place where they get caught. But, but here's what's helpful about that. And I can have compassion for that. And, And I think that's where we can start to grow. Chelsea, I thought you made such a good point about um, mental illness kind of coming back to the root of difficulty with regulation. And I know in the attachment world, there is a, a growing belief that there really is no such thing as self regulation. It is all co regulation. Even if we do it for ourselves, we do it because somebody co regulated us at some point. And so if I get a subpoena, which is my absolute least favorite part of my job ever is to get a subpoena as very anxiety producing. In, instead of saying that I self-regulate, what do I do? I think about what will my husband say to me when I get home and say, you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to have to go testify on somebody's behalf. He'll, he will say, I know you hate it, but you've got this. You're good at this. It's I'm not regulating myself. It's it's the part of him that I'm internalized that's helping me. And so I think what you're saying, Maria, is so important that we we cannot co-regulate somebody if we're not willing to step into their space, especially when that space isn't especially easy to sit with. When they're having some of those. I don't know, less appealing reactions that that's where it happens when we're, when we're able to be with a person in that. And in order to do it, we have to have a certain amount of understanding and trust that regardless of um, what it might bring up in me, that I have faith in you. I know what is at the core of you. And so I can sit here while you grieve or are angry or, filled with shame. And so again, coming back to the wheel, I think it's just such a beautiful opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time to help us feel, I think the value, the primary value, despite all of our training, the main thing that therapists offer people is a space where we're not shutting down what you are. We're not pathologizing it. We're not Um, And looking at a wheel like this says, okay, so if this feeling that is my least favorite or how I feel the most vulnerable, if it's on that wheel, it exists in the world. It's not just me. It's that same kind of acceptance. I don't know. I just think is a really, um, it's a really neat thing, a really healing Mm. tool. Well, I love what you said about the co-regulation and Maria saying about, you know, we're in this in relationship, but it's that what i here and what I'm even feel when I'm listening to you all, I can see that part of me. I'm not even sure that it's a gift I don't have, but the volumes turned way down. And then when I'm around hearing you, then I learn to turn the volume up on that particular emotion. The sense sensitivity uh, meter can kind of come up a little bit, and I can learn to I can learn to integrate that a little bit more into my life, which is part of that. I think that co-regulation is just kind of like, oh, you gave me permission to and to normalize that thing that I was afraid of. I want this to normalize emotion for people to be like, oh, 
it's not completely out of the question that I'm going to feel completely overwhelmed and armored and hostile. Like <laughs> that's going to happen sometimes or that I'm going to feel so purposeless and disconnected um, or I'm going to like pull back because I'm spinning and I'm going to feel like inferior and foolish. Like these things are going to go on in our lives at different points in time. And we can say like, I'm disrupted right now, but I can be with it as Chelsea was talking about. I can be with that emotion and that will actually help me move through it because then I'm not trying to be good. I'm not trying to be this sort of center thing. I, I come home to what I truly am. Something a couple of you guys uh, said set something off in my brain when I was thinking about this center of the, the feelings we have of peace, faith, and love. Sometimes I'm, I'm not even sure that those are feelings. It's like when those are integrated, it's almost like those are states. <laughs> it's like a state uh, of being. It's like a, it's because it's part feeling, it's part decision, um, it's part allowing space for it. It's almost one step <laughs> beyond or outside of just mm -hmm. a feeling. And as you were describing that, I was like, oh, yeah, like that's that's something else. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. it really does. Definitely. Definitely it's a, does. The fabric of that essential self. Mm. I, I come from a background um, where I've done a lot of mindfulness-based psychotherapies. And, you know, what mindfulness really is, is it's, you know, paying attention to something on purpose without judgment. Mm. And Good definition. Say it again. <laughs> okay. Paying attention to something on purpose without judgment. So good. And the place where we get in trouble, the place where our suffering lives, is quite often in that judgment. It's what we don't want to sit with, what we say, no, this is too much. I can't do this. This is bad. This is wrong. It's either it's wrong for me to feel that way, or that's a primitive emotion, or that's too vulnerable, or whatever it is. Or we love something so much that we want to cling to it. And we just want to, you know, sit and marinate in it. But, you know, if we can get to the place where we can just notice where we are without either clinging to it or pushing it away, what we find is that it kind of comes and goes. It, it, it moves like a wave. And you know, I remember years ago, there was this book um, called Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy. And it was kind of a, a self-help cognitive behavior therapy book um, for depression. And I remember years ago being at a training, and I, I think it was with Robert Leahy, and forgive me if I was wrong, Robert Leahy, but um, I believe what he said was, you know, if I were to name this book, I would have called it Feeling Everything. Because it really isn't about feeling good. I think what we want is to feel good. That that's what's attractive to us. I just want to feel good. But really what we need is to have equal access to whatever comes and goes without trying something artificial to get rid of it, whether it's to stuff it or to repress it or to cling to it and marinate in it or whatever that thing is. I think that when we just kind of release and we sit with what is without judgment, all of a sudden we're free. Because you're, you are, you're unstoppable. If you can be where you are and you don't have to escape um, or then you have no limits. 
right? I mean, you're absolutely powerful if you don't have to fear whatever space you are led into. Yeah, but people are so afraid of that. I think the thing that people say to me all the time is some version of, if I let myself go there, whatever that feeling is will be so big or so horrible or so terrible that I will drown, I will die, I will go crazy, it will never go away. And that actually isn't what happens. I mean, that's the thing, you know, if you think about it, like, you know, if I pull a muscle in my back and now I start walking weird because I'm trying to protect that space, I'm going to start having pain all over my body. But if I can just kind of sit with that core of that thing that got injured for a little bit, you know, the pain is unavoidable, but I don't need all the crap that got attached to it. (laughs) You know, and I think that's what we do with our feelings is that we you know, we start doing something weird because I'm having this feeling and either I'm going to hold on really tight to this or I'm going to force something else away in an unnatural way. And now we've got a whole bunch of things that we didn't bargain for and that we now have to deal with, you know? Mm. Well, and the thing about life is that it's full of suffering. Like if you're living, if you're living life correctly, (laughs) there inevitably will be moments or seasons of suffering. And so I think, again, especially in the culture and society we live in, it's how do we numb that out? How do we avoid that? How do we push it down and just get through it so we can keep moving and keep doing the next thing without really, again, letting ourselves feel it? Because it sucks. and We don't want to feel suffering. Those, Those are painful emotions. They're not typically ones that we're like, yes, I get to feel this sense of pain and suffering. And yet life is going to be full of that. There are going to be losses of people we love and hard times and stress. And so being able to do exactly that, Maria, what you're talking about, about being mindful and open to all of it, um, not labeling an emotion as good and bad but in knowing that it's temporary, it's not going to last forever. And the more that we can turn toward it, turn toward it and feel it and even better feel with somebody else, let somebody else in on that emotion, um, whether they're feeling the same or not being with and having that co-regulator is what's going to help us continue to move through it and come to the other side of it. But I think we're so taught that that's not good, that that's scary, that these are emotions that we can outrun or push down or numb out. Um, but the hard thing, especially about numbing out, it's so enticing uh, to do. And there's so many options <laughs> these days to numb out. But when we numb out the painful emotions, we are inevitably going to numb out the good feeling ones as well. To piggyback on what you guys are saying there, that um, I think it's single-handedly, this has the power to um, include a whole segment of the world that that we don't know how to include if all we can feel is everything's good. Mm. Because chronic pain, Alzheimer's, brain injury, genocide, all the things that like, can get bigger and bigger and bigger, where if all that we're, our goal is, is to feel good or to feel pleasant, then we inevitably ostracize how much of the world, you know? So I think, I think this could um, normalize so much more than we even realize. Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of a hope and a goal is to is when you see the 
that positive in the center, I feel like it's less intimidating to even go out to the edges. I'm hoping that there is an empowering aspect of that. Like I'm, I'm more willing to look at the most negative things that I feel or that I experience because I see it as part of a whole, not the whole. It's I am, I am having this feeling, not that I am, you know, I feel sad. Not I am sad. We're not using that, like I, that over identification kind of language. And, and to Chelsea's point, like, I, yeah, you're so right. It was experiencing a great deal of pain was an invitation to vulnerability that actually sensitized me to others and, and created a greater sense of connection and like opened the more of the channels to, to love and, and connection in that way. You're exactly saying, you know, some of those, um, some of those things and what I want to see come together. One thought that I had here, and it's just kind of going off of what we've been saying, which is, I think a piece that gets lost in here is the issue of narrative. You know, we each have a narrative that is, type specific. <laughs> and it's the story that we tell ourselves about who we are and what our lives are like and what that means. And so, you know, you and I can go through an identical painful experience, but if we have a different narrative, we're going to come out of it looking really different, you know? Right. And I, I think one of the things that we're not good at is actually really noticing and remembering accurately. You know, we tend to remember things that fit the narrative. So if I'm a four and my narrative is that I'm on the outside looking in, that I'm not really a part of this, that, you know, all of that four stuff, that's the story I'm going to tell you. That, that, that's what the narrative is. But if I were to really sit and be mindful of that feeling, whatever it is that I'm noticing in the moment, wherever I am, what I'll find is that it's not actually that story, <laughs> that maybe there was some moment of that, but then there was a moment of joy that was interspersed, and then there was a moment of something else, and, and we're not exactly the stories that we tell ourselves. Right. And so I, I think being able to, you know, when you're able to sit with the feeling without trying to get rid of it, to try to, you know, fade it, fix it morph it into something else what we really see is that you know what my pain was not a lifetime of unending misery a actually that may have been there but there are other things too hmm. i'm not terrified every moment of my life i have other feelings too or not ashamed every moment hmm. so i think it opens the door for a whole lot of other things and to move beyond the narrative i think when we're doing this emotions work, keeping in mind that idea of self-compassion and giving ourselves grace, just like with anything else with this, um, that this can be hard work, um, even for heart center types, but um, especially if you're not in the heart center. And I know one thing that has helped for myself, my clients, and I use a lot with my students is some of the self-compassion pieces and trying to hold myself and others in that compassion, regardless of the emotion that's coming up. And I know for me, it can be helpful to have a guided meditation that helps me tap into the feelings. I use Dr. Kristen Neff's uh, website a lot. She's the like researcher in self-compassion and has some the wonderful, website. Uh, yeah, website is uh, selfcompassion.org. 
and has some really lovely short and longer guided meditation practices um, and some that are like a self-compassion break, but also about how to feel your feelings. And I think those help me to really sit in it and do a little bit of body scan into what's coming up and then continuing to try to have that mindfulness, non-judgment, hold myself in compassion and others in compassion with whatever we come in with and holding the space. And I think that's the wonderful piece about therapy is that we are often able to hold that space for clients coming in with whatever emotion, all the emotions coming in and, and offering a bit of that co-regulation yeah. as well, especially for clients who hadn't, have not gotten that. I work with a lot of kids and families and adults with trauma backgrounds that didn't have a foundational attachment, secure attachment that led to safe co-regulation. And then now we're having really difficult time regulating themselves, regulating their own kids, co-regulating with a partner, co-regulating with their children. Um, and so I think the practice of therapy, even just those doses of co-regulation we can offer can rewire the brain and heal in this, this way that is movement, is process, um, is, is the art, I think, of therapy. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. So before you all go, I'm going to throw up the image one more time. And I would love tips from each of you. Like, let's say that someone, they went to the web, the Art of Growth website, they, they got this and now it's hanging up. It's hanging up either on the fridge or at the house somewhere. Um, what's one tip that you would give them from where you come from and what you know that you would recommend to them? I would love for people to hear that so many of us, avoid certain feelings because we are afraid we'll be unsafe or we'll be rejected. And imagine every therapist here would agree when you sit with a person and they are authentic and they are truly um, in whatever is true or real for them, it is impossible not to care for that person. Mm. Going there, if you have the courage and you have the appropriate person to do it with, actually yields the exact opposite of what people fear. You, you, you will be safe. You will be accepted. Getting from here to there is not always easy. But so, yeah, I would say when you look at that beautiful wheel with the watercolors, that they are not good and bad or acceptable or unacceptable. Right. Look on that wheel. And if you can find where you are right now, the fact that it's on there means that that's okay. That's okay. Other people are feeling that too. Mm, thank you. I would say a couple things. One is if you look at this, if someone looks at this and just feels immediately overwhelmed or unsure, to maybe start with a color and just land on a color and see where that takes you. And then I would also just say that this is not an exhaustive list, surprisingly, right. of emotions, that it's just a doorway. And that if you can't find exactly what you're looking for, um, find something close or again, you know, just stick with the color. I'd be curious about two things. One, where in your body do you feel that emotion? Is there a place 
your, your throat, your stomach, your hands, your behind your eyes? Is there a place in your body where you can really feel the sensations of the emotion? What sensations go on with that? How do I know when I'm feeling sad? What is my body telling me that helps me clue in that this is sadness or this is anger or disappointment or something else. Uh, the other piece, looking at it from really exploring family of origin, I think can be helpful with this. What are the stories that I was told about this emotion when I was younger and in my family of origin and maybe even my family now? Are we allowed to express certain emotions? Are we rewarded for expressing certain emotions and punished for others or shamed for others? Because I think for me, that's also helped to understand why I have such a hard time with certain emotions um, or the stories society tells us, right? Whether it's about our gender or race or ethnicity or something else about what's allowed and what's not allowed to be expressed. I think really getting curious about some of that will help us understand uh, maybe some barriers that can come up when trying to tap into certain emotions. And you bring up a really important point there, Chelsea. I think sometimes I could walk up and I could be like, I don't, I don't know where am I? But if you ask yourself the, some of the questions about like, which, where did I witness this? What were some of the ones I witnessed in my home growing up and be able to kind of understand a little bit where you come from by actually having a little objective distance and kind of look at like, where, which emotion showed up a lot in, in my family of origin as I was growing up. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. I think my parting thought might be um, speak a little bit to our, the Western philosophy that has done us a great disservice thinking that our heads and hearts are, are separate, you know, that emotions are just, you know, that woo-woo thing, um, why do we need to go there? we're missing the fundamental understanding that uh, it's a biological designed system to give us information of our outside world. So some of that, um, you know, non-judgment being a little bit, you know, unattached or over-identifying with emotions to, to see it as information. It's information that's coming in and the body is kind of organizing it in a in a in a way to prioritize action um and so seeing it as information yes the idea really is like someone said earlier it's it's the goal is to be have the whole rainbow of expressions you know the more information you have the better you know decisions you can make and so there's just no there fundamentally is no bad or wrong emotion it's it's simply a biological response can dispert uh, molecules of emotion you know ultimately emotion is a protein protein peptide it's a it's a physical thing you know it's a series of chemical reactions in response to stimuli so dive in <laughs> love it <laughs> well the first thing that i I guess I'd like to say with this is that you'll notice there's no hierarchy of types, right? You know, there's not like, Oh, these are the healthy ones. And those are the unhealthy ones. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the people that I work with 
in a variety of places on the Enneagram, believe that they're broken. You know, they're coming in because there's something that's not working right. And what I would say is that you're not broken, (laughs) that where you are on that wheel simply helps you know what your life's work is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we're better at that than at other times. You know, that, you know, sometimes everything is going pretty well and everything is in tune and I'm the best me that I can be. And other times it feels like everything is wrong and awful. And, you know, we can label something or we can identify it is not helpful. We can identify it is not useful to us um, or not healthy for us, but we are not broken. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not defined by the least functional part of ourselves. Yeah. It just lets me know that, ah, this is part of my work. And maybe I have to work on that really hard right now so that I can get out of a depression or work on an anxiety problem or what have you. Or maybe this is something I have to cultivate for the rest of my life. And, and I think quite often that's really what it often is. It's, you know, this is the thing that one way or another, I am going to be have to be focusing on is my work. Um, and it's different than your work, but that's okay. That's not, neither one is good or bad. That's just the flavor we got. Yeah. Mm. Well, I am just hugely honored that you all have taken this time to help um, it's funny. I'm like, help me understand the thing I made, but um, just help other people understand uh, the the usage of this and, and why uh, these are so helpful. I think it's an incredibly helpful parenting tool, which came up. I think it's a incredibly helpful integration tool to understand like that all everything belongs. All of this is part of us, and um, and that the the core view is good. Like you, like he was just saying, like you're not broken. Like like we always say around here, there's nothing wrong with you, and you have a lot of work to do. It is both. It, these are both uh, true. And so for the parenting, for the integration, for actually seeing and getting to know yourself better. You know, we even say that to Abby and I say that whenever we meet with couples is like, we have good news. You'll never understand each other Um, because you don't even hardly understand yourself. Like, how are you going to really understand another person? But like getting to understand yourself and the person you're with better and really understanding what is going on. Um, I feel like Enneagram, at its best, it's the you are here spot on the map. That's the way I refer to it. It doesn't tell your destination. It tells you this is where your starting point is. And to me, this is another map. It's like, well, find the you are here spot. But that is not deterministic about um, your identity or your direction. Um, So thank you so much for taking this time to unpack this tool. I'm so excited that uh, whenever this goes out in the next month or so to people and and they can they can download it, they can put it on there wherever they want themselves and um, and, and hopefully use it as, as a tool for growth. So thank you so much for helping in um, them do that. And I just so appreciate your knowledge. I learned just so much from you tonight even, and I'm so thankful. So thank you for being with me. I really, really appreciate every single one of you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks so much. Bye yes, everyone. You, Goodbye. Bye. So thank you so much for listening today and thank you so much to our incredible panelists who 
a couple of them were the ones who pushed me to make this into what it is today. And you all can have it now because they were like, you need to, you need to make that, you need to make that accessible for people. So I'm so thankful for their wisdom, for their knowledge, for their encouragement to me in pushing me. And I'm perpetually humbled that sometimes things I write in my journal to help me can end up going out and helping thousands of you it just touches my heart in a really special way. So thank you so much for listening. So download this and access all of our resources at theartofgrowth.org. Follow us on Instagram. It's just art of growth. But for now, my friends, may you be more in touch with what is going on in your inner world. May you tune into the thoughts and feelings and physical sensations happening in your body, in your heart, in your mind. And this week, may you stand as a compassionate witness to yourself, seeing from within, but also outside with a little objectivity to create some direction and intentionality toward where you want to go. You are on the journey. You are doing it. And may you be reminded in seeing all of this that everything belongs, that the best of you is permanent, that the worst is temporary. So move toward your true self that is full of love and faith and peace. Grace and growth, my friends. Mm-hmm.